2: on WKXL, New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how it all affects our nation's future. This week, we'll hear from three members of Congress who took part in a virtual discussion we hosted on Monday, November 13th, titled Working Toward a Sustainable Fiscal Future in a Divided Congress. The three congressmen were Representative Don Bacon, Republican of Nebraska, Representative Jared Golden, Democrat of Maine, and Representative Scott Peters, Democrat of California. They were recipients, along with Congressman Bill Heisinger, Republican of Michigan, of the Concord Coalition's 2023 Economic Patriot Award, which is given for efforts to bring about a more fiscally sustainable path for future generations. Joining the discussion were Concord Coalition Policy Director Tori Gorman and Chief Economist Steve Robinson, both of whom have had extensive experience in senior Capitol Hill positions. In the first segment, you'll hear opening statements from Congressman Don Bacon, Jared Golden, and Scott Peters in that order.
0: I try to come up with some bipartisan solutions. So uh, I'll keep my comments here to the next two minutes. Uh, First of all, I'm a big fan of the Debt Commission. You know, I proposed in 2016 when I was a challenger, make some reforms to the mandatory spending, which, by the way, is 71% of our spending. So with 71% of our spending, you can't just balance the budget on 29% of the discretionary budget. Because I made those proposals, I've had roughly $32 million in ads run against me uh, in the last four election cycles, almost all on mandatory spending reforms that I suggested And because of that, I think a lot of other folks refuse or don't want to make proposals or get involved in this. I think the debt commission is important because it allows 50% Republicans, 50% Democrats. I believe they should be more experts, more than just elected folks. It should be folks who understand mandatory spending. And it allows us to put Democrat wins and Republican wins on the table, a balanced approach for an up or down vote. I believe that that's the only way that we're going to get this mandatory spending resolved. So I'm a supporter of this. I uh, thank um, uh, Bill Huizinga for being the, the sponsor on this. I was asked why I'm talking about growing the economy. This involves having energy independence, trade, open trade for our agriculture, stability on regulations, investment tax credits, and we need to expand legal immigration while we do a much better job controlling illegal immigration. And finally, I just want to mention that we can't get none of this done unless we have consensus with Republicans and Democrats. The culture in Washington today is the majority party tries to do it all on their own, and then it dies, a long death in the Senate, and you can't get the president's support. It just doesn't work. Uh, I wrote the Federalist Papers. I'm, I'm, right now I'm reading Joe Grant and General Rutherford, B, uh, President Rutherford B.A.'s. Bottom line is, nothing's been done in this country without consensus building uh, across the aisle. And But yeah, it's our culture today not to do that. And that's why I'm a member of the Problem Solvers, why I'm a member of the Four Country Caucus. And... Without it, we're going to get very little done. Uh, so just, I, I that, guess
3: I one thing I would point out is I've started uh, my own kind of blog or substack uh, to speak directly to Mainers and to my constituents, uh, most importantly. Uh, and my first areas of focus were uh, talking about our na- our national debt, uh, how this has become a problem and, and touching on many of the uh, issues that, that Don Bacon was just speaking to. I, I, I did that because I thought it was really important to try and help people understand not just how large the debt problem has become uh, and how much worse it, it is said to become in the future, but also uh, to try and speak to them a little bit about why it should matter to them, not only as they look to the future, but but how it is negatively impacting uh, them today. One of those points being that America's debt is slowing economic growth today. Reading of the economy would, would, would uh, by economists and others would would prove that. Another thing I always stress to my constituents about why this really matters is how it is crowding out important investments in our people and in the future of the country. So last year we spent more on servicing the debt, uh, the debt's interest than we did on public education, transportation and veterans healthcare services combined. Uh, that's just one small example. Uh, untouched, our deficit problems snowballed to the point where eventually it becomes our largest expenditure. That is just the interest that we would have to pay on an annual basis. Uh, currently, our nation's debt is about 100% of our annual gross domestic product. That's something called the debt to GDP ratio. Uh, generally, I think you want it much lower than 100%, uh, probably more safely, uh, you want it in the 70s but we're on pace in 10 years' time to have our debt be 120% of our GDP. You go much higher than that, and I think you start to see examples in history where countries really start uh, to struggle with keeping up with, with the payment on their debts. I have put out a proposal uh, that was in my, uh, my sub-stack to try and just freeze our debt to GDP where we're at, at 100%, which is no easy feat. Uh, that's how big the problem has become, so... That would take us roughly over two years time, a reduction in our projected budget deficits of, of $500 billion in two years, but it would take $2 trillion in in savings in our budget over five years. And ultimately, to hit the goal over 10 years, you would have to reduce our projected budget deficits by $7 trillion. Uh, So that just gives you a a feel for the scale of the problem and what type of effort it would take here in Congress just to try and hold the line and not allow for exponential growth going forward. So no more time really for kicking the can down the road, which is why my colleagues and I here uh, continue to try and work together uh, to get the attention of the American public. Uh, and hopefully our
1: colleagues here in Washington. So first of all, thanks for doing this. Thanks to the Concrete Coalition. I actually appreciate your emails and I read them. They're, they're good summaries of where we are uh, and we're challenged. I mean, I saw today that uh, Moody's has downgraded our, our credit rating to negative. Um, that's a reflection of the fact that interest payments are going up as a part of our budget. It's not gonna get any cheaper. I think um, it's not long before we're projected to be spending more on interest payments than we are on uh, national defense. I'm trying to make the case why Democrats should be concerned about this, because if like me, you're interested in something like the child tax credit, which I think would be a a terrific anti-poverty pro-family policy. um, You can't pay for that if you're paying all your money because you've been borrowing to pay your expenses over time. And every, every interest dollar that we pay is is something that we did in the past with current money. And it doesn't make any sense. And it's very dangerous for us at a time too, when international challenges are only getting larger. I mean, we, we talked about borrowing money for the pandemic in the case of an emergency, and I was making the point: it's important to have a strong balance sheet so that you can meet those emergencies as they come up. Now we've got, um, obviously, we've got Ukraine, we've got, we've got what's happening in, in, in Israel and Gaza, and we've got to be concerned about Taiwan. We have to be strong. This debt is weakening us as a country, and I think um, you know people understand that conceptually, but it's hard to do something about it. Bill Heising and I. Um, Jody Arrington, before him, chaired the bipartisan fiscal forum. We think that this idea of a commission, uh, which is in the bill that um, that Bill and I introduced, um, is the prop is a proper way to do this. There's a lot of indignation among some older members of Congress that we should be able to do it as a Congress. Well, of course, we should be able to do it as a Congress, but we're not uh, nice people who worked in the Congress in the '90s come in and they say, "Well, this is how we did it." It's a different situation. It's just not. It's just not the. Um, the bipartisan um, uh, place f- filled with conservative Democrats and liberal Republicans that it used to be. We have to have some way to force us to be together and we need a cop on the beat. So the two issues that um, that I talk about a little bit are uh, Medicare and Social Security and taxes, uh, Medicare and Social Security. Medicare's, I mean, Social Security is upside down in eight to 10 years. And when that happens, when those lines cross, when revenues don't cover expenses, there's automatic cuts, across the board cuts. And Democrats are very indignant. We can't, we can't cut social security. We can't cut social security. But that's the path we're on. If you wanted to cut social security, you would do nothing because it takes care of itself down the line. And as, as Democrats, you want to save the benefits. The sooner you start on that, the better off you are. Because if you get to the end point when the cut is the 20, the 23% cut is coming tomorrow, someone's going to say to you, well, how's 15% for you? And that's not the position that people who want to save medicare and social security want to be in so we got to talk about that now if we want to save the programs unfortunately the groups are calling and including the white and the white house are calling this a death panel for social security but social security is in the hospital bed and it needs to be treated the the other thing is about taxes you know i think there's a concern that fiscal responsibility isn't just about spending and particularly on the narrow the the small amount that we control it's about, it's about the appropriate tax policy as well. Uh, a lot of us were uh, very critical of the Trump tax cuts at a time when the economy was strong, created a, a huge hole in the budget. And even today, um, the way Republicans talk about taxes is really inappropriate. And I, I heard Speaker Johnson talk about the pay for for the, um, the Israel supplemental $14 billion from the IRS when he knows darn well, and the CBO knows darn well that every dollar that you spend on the IRS brings back two. You wanna think about revenues um, you know collecting revenues that are already owed is an important thing but we are not having an honest conversation about that because there's no cop on the beat the idea of a a, a commission that would be staffed in part or would be would be filled in part with experts is to say no no, that's not right let's be honest about where the money is where the money's going. I don't think we can have that conversation honestly uh, without a commission with experts on it and we're going to come up in 25 on a lot of in, in 2025 with a lot of pressure to extend those tax cuts. Um, that the, the trump administration made republican only um, and i think we, we want to understand that better we want to and we want to be honest about it so um, i think democrats should be running at this idea um, and i'm uh, i'm hoping you can help us uh get them there
2: you're listening to facing the future i'm your host bob bixby and we're talking today with three members of congress don bacon jared golden and scott peters about making the federal budget more sustainable in a divided Congress. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. This week, we're talking with three members of Congress, Don Bacon of Nebraska, Jared Golden of Maine, and Scott Peters of California, about making the federal budget uh, more sustainable in a divided Congress. The conversation took place on Monday, November 13th. In the next segment, I asked Congressman Golden what he thinks, what what he tells his constituents about the importance of fiscal responsibility And then Tory asked Don Bacon how lawmakers can build trust across the aisle. And then finally, Steve Robinson asked Congressman Peters about the budgetary costs of higher interest rates.
3: I'm looking at at my letter right here. And one thing I would cite to folks is that according to some estimates, a nation's economic growth slows by roughly uh, 0.017 percent for every percentage point. Of debt in excess of 77% of that debt to GDP ratio that I'm talking about. Um, Of course, I told you that we're around 100%. We're already experiencing slower economic growth as a result of the size of our national debt. That is only going to get worse uh, with the passage of time unless Congress really takes some steps here to reduce the the growth of our annual budget uh, deficit. That's an economic you know, case right there. Uh, I think reducing the deficit will ultimately produce a, a better performing economy. Um, from a national security standpoint, I would say that yes, I think it's a it's an it's an issue of of national security. Um, I had a good talk once with the former Speaker Paul Ryan, um, who was advocating that that the problem with the national debt is. Uh, from the perspective of national security is that it often doesn't seem like it's an emergency, but it will be eventually. And when it does, I think it's a, often a very rapid descent uh, and one that the general public is unlikely to really see coming. You know, essentially it's not a big problem until it's a very big and, and sometimes irreversible problem. Um, hence it, it's really difficult to to talk about in the here and now and get people to, to understand the urgency. But I don't even think you really have to argue it. You can look around, the world to see what happens to some countries when their debt to GDP ratios get out of control and their economy slows too much. And and then coupled with a series of, you know, global and national disasters, um, they suffer collapse. And just because we're as big as we are and as powerful as we are, doesn't mean that it could not happen here. Um, and I certainly you know, hope it's not in my lifetime or, or my kids or their grandkids, but um, you can see, the potential for being out there in the not too distant future.
2: Let me uh, turn now to our policy director, Tori Gorman, for a question.
4: Congressman Bacon, I'm going to direct this one to you. As a former Brigadier General in, in the Air Force, I think you know something about bringing a, a group of people together and fighting for a common cause. Putting our national debt on a more sustainable trajectory is going to require major concessions from both parties. But from where I sit, you know, a key foundation element foundational element uh, is missing from negotiations. And namely, that's trust. Lawmakers just they just don't trust each other. In your opinion, what do you think Republicans and Democrats need to see from each other to know that it's safe to begin a public dialogue on what we know are going to be tough choices? I mean, this is an issue where the public is not going to lead, unlike the border where they've been clamoring for for uh, Solutions. So, lawmakers are going to have to do it. So, what do you think needs to happen to get members to a place of trust and mutual respect so that we can start working on these tough
0: issues? Thank you, Tori. There's 18% of Congress are veterans today. And when I got elected in 2016 and and said the oath on January 3rd, 2017, uh, my first friends on the Democrat side of the aisle were veterans. That seemed like to be the, that's how we first met each other. Like, Salute Carbajal became one of my best friends, and he's a Marine. And Jer- Jared got to know him late uh, in 20, 2018 when he was elected uh, as well. And it just seems like the, the veterans sort of quickly bonded together. and We do have more trust uh, across the aisle because it's it is about serving America first, less about, you know, a Republican win or a Democrat win. We want to we want to do things good for the country. I know other people do, too, that aren't veterans, but we do have that quick bond as veterans. And I think on the debt commission, what I like about it is it's going to be Republican and Democrat wins and losses. It's, it's going to be a mix of our priorities and some of the Democrat priorities. So I think I would assume, uh, though I don't want to uh, really prejudge some of the findings of a commission, but I believe you'll you'll look at raising the caps on taxes that are for withholdings for Social Security. Right now it's capped somewhere around $140,000. Then you stop paying into Social Security. I would assume that that would be adjusted. That would probably be more of a Democrat priority to do so. Uh, but I also think they'll look at maybe some of the retirement ages, uh, maybe adjust that by a year for a long-term uh, stability. That would be maybe more of a Republican one. I believe you got to do both, not necessarily these exact proposals, but a mix of Republican-Democrat ones. if you're going to secure Social Security beyond 2034. And as Scott Peters said, if we don't do anything, one day it's just going to be cut 25%. The next year it'll be cut 28%. and just keeps getting worse. And so that's not the right answer. So this will not happen without a commission, in my view. We're, we're gonna we'll we'll go into the we'll go we'll go bankrupt or insolvent insolvent or insolvent if we do nothing. And people are too scared to propose these solutions. I have, and I've had thirty two million dollars of ads run against me. So I think other people look at it and go, no, this, we're gonna have to do something different. And so I think the commission's the right way to go, and we'll build trust. And I would also, to a broader point of your question, When I, if you look back a decade ago, or even two decades ago, the left side of the Republican Party significantly overlapped with the right side of the Democrat Party to a point where you have about 20% of the Congress in that gray zone. Today, literally, there is no overlap. Jared is right on the very right side of his party, and then you go farther out, you got got Fitz, Fitzpatrick from the Republicans, but there's a gap there. And so we are more polarized than we've ever been. And it seems like the whole only goal is to win the next election. Somehow we've got to make the goal of saving our country, uh, the preem- preeminent discussion. And, and it's just, that that part is missing. It's there, but it's not the priority. It's so it, literally on the Republican side, and I hear it on the Democrat side, it's all about who's going to be the next majority, of the next Congress. But well, that doesn't work for our country. we got to solve problems. And I think in the end, the best policy is the best politics. If you're solving problems, the American people will like it. And let me
5: turn now to Steve Robinson, uh, Chief Economist, for a question. C- Congressman Peters, you, you mentioned in your remarks about Moody's decision uh, last week to, to change its outlook on the U.S. debt to negative. Um, it, you know There are actually three credit rating agencies, and it looks like uh, Moody's has, is getting ready, perhaps, to join. As you recall, back in 2011, uh, Standard & Poor's downgraded the U.S. debt from AAA to AA and then earlier this year, Fitch did the same thing. So you now have, you know, the three credit rating agencies saying that, you know, they're concerned about the the ability of the U.S. to, to manage its debt. And, and that implies to the financial markets uh, that there's a greater risk there. And, you know, historically, risk is associated with higher interest rates. When you have a, a $30 trillion national debt, every one percentage point interest uh, rate increases $300 billion a year in extra interest costs. So, you know, you're, you're talking about a, a huge burden going forward if if interest rates continue to rise. What's what is your sense? I mean, are we at a turning point? I mean, we saw you know ultra low interest rates over the last decade and a half after the financial crisis and the pandemic. The Fed was able to keep interest rates very low. But we're now seeing a couple of weeks ago the 10-year bond was at 5%. I mean, if interest rates remain high, do you, do you think that will be a catalyst uh, to convince Congress that we actually you know need to begin to address the debt problem?
1: I hope so. I mean, um, I, I don't know what's going to break it, Steve. I mean, just a year ago, we had people espousing modern monetary theory, this notion we could just print as much money as we wanted because – you know, uh, forget history, interest rates will never go up again. And now we're really, we're, you know, it's, it's kind of a um, splash of cold water. There's a couple things going on um, that I think should concern us. One is I think revenues are down 9%, even though the economy is strong, something's wrong with the tax collection. We're supposed to be pulling out of it when the economy is strong and we're not. Um, and, you know, and you see these downgrades, I think it's important, but I would just say, Um, that Don is right, um, that we have to do this, I think, through a commission, a bipartisan way, get this conversation going. Everyone has the instinct we have to do something. But I I can't. uh, It's hard to overstate how scared people are of the fringe and of Twitter. And so it's really hard for um, for members of Congress to go out and say what Don just said. Right. Uh, Publicly. He just said you have to lower the retirement age. You're gonna have to raise the cap. I mean, that's that's the kind of stuff that, well, as he said, will get thirty two million dollars of ads run against him. Um, there's got to be a safe space for that. And so um, I think that there's an instinct across the Congress that we have to do something about this. Most people agree. Um, I, I just suggest that um, it would be helpful if people could push back on those outside forces and say, look, you know, Congress, let, let's get this into a commission as soon as possible, because. We're really facing a crisis down the line. I think all the evidence is that way. So I hope it does push us at least into that. Um, I'd love to see it push us into an actual problem solving, but I think that's a little bit of a bridge too far. And that the right now in this in this part in this point in congressional history that the commission um, that Haisenga and I have proposed and that these guys have supported is the right way to go. You're listening
2: to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tory Gorman, Steve Robinson and I are talking with Congressman Don Bacon, Jared Golden and Scott Peters about fiscal responsibility in a divided Congress. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Corey Gorman, Steve Robinson and I are talking with three members of Congress, Don Bacon, Jared Golden and Scott Peters, about making the federal budget more affordable, uh, more sustainable in uh, in a divided Congress. In this uh, next segment, we talked about uh, building trust uh, across the aisle and we, we talked about building trust uh, with the public. And I also asked uh, Congressman Golden what sort of feedback he's gotten from his constituents when he writes to them about fiscal responsibility.
3: In, in terms of feedback, uh, I think that the, the communication with my constituents has, has been well received. Uh, it's it's a new conversation that I've started uh, just you know this year, um, and I think um, folks back home appreciate uh, the kind of in depth. Uh, analysis that I'm able to provide through that venue uh, such that even if they don't agree uh, 100% with some of the um, priorities that I am am setting in that conversation or uh, solutions that I put forward, they they at least appreciate the conversation itself. Uh, So largely positive feedback. And and, and it's been pretty well, pretty well read and, and people, you know, engage with it. So that's been good. I think that I mentioned a little bit um, the need to look at Social Security and Medicare near the end of, of that substack, and of course that does frighten some people. But I thought it was important to touch upon in order to remind people that the status quo actually sets us up for reductions in Social Security benefits uh, and ultimately Medicare insolvency. Um, not far, you know, behind that. Um, which is a real problem where we would expect to see reductions in payments to healthcare providers and, and uh, hospitals. And, you know, that would cause a lot of problems out there for for both the healthcare system, but also for, I think, Medicare beneficiaries as well. So that's one thing that I think isn't well understood in the conversation of, you know, reform um, entitlement programs. Don't touch them. Very often, there's no conversation about the status quo is really a recipe for for cuts and, and it's not far away. And, and I think that that is what will create the pressure for success uh, in regards to what comes out of a commission. You know, I think that one, one of the more you know important things to recognize is some of these deadlines for trust fund insolvency um, with an understanding that there, there needs to be a, a lot of pressure created and put on Congress to act. Uh, and I think that in, in practice, while I like the idea of the commission and, and would love it if it came back in this Congress or, or in the next Congress and proposed some steps that, um, we all know Congress often kicks a can down the road and fails to act, but those deadlines, social security, trust fund, uh, insolvency and, and Medicare, um, I think will be, a a, a great you know, source of, of political pressure, um, that could lead Congress to take some steps. And so the commission has really got to focus, I think, on putting together uh, a good report with some clear, um, Bipartisan steps that could be taken, such that um, it's a relevant part of that conversation when when it's forced upon upon the Congress.
2: So sure, it could really have a public education function as well as uh, substantive.
1: The the um, the commission that we proposed is designed to give us a vote, and this is true with the Romney um, Mansion Romney proposal too. A vote without amendments up or down uh, on the floor of each each chamber. So. Um, I think uh, I think Jared's right that we, you know, we need something to put into action. And most people are skeptical of a commission that produces another report without a chance to vote. Let's let's put it to a vote. That's that's the idea behind this. I think that's what makes people nervous about it, too. I just say I agree. So, okay, <laughs> Go up or
0: down vote.
4: Uh, I'm going to go rogue here, Bob. Hope you don't mind. But uh, we've, we're having a conversation here about tough choices, leadership, generating trust, fiscal commission, Um Congressman Peters was very clear about how all policy options should be on the table. I want to talk a brief second about an experience I had as a House staffer in the late 90s, early 2000s, working for a Social Security task force. It was bipartisan. Uh, I worked for a Republican member from Arizona. My best friend worked for a Democrat from from uh, Abilene, Texas. And one of the key elements of our of our core group. Uh, was that when one of us was attacked on social security, uh, the others would come to the rescue. So when my boss, uh, Jim Colby in Arizona was running for re-election, was viciously attacked for his positions on social security reform, uh, Congressman Charlie, Charlie Stenholm, Democrat from Texas, wrote a letter to the local paper, a letter to the editor saying, you guys shouldn't be criticizing him for this. And the same thing happened two years later when Charlie Stenholm was getting attacked, my boss wrote a letter. Now their respective leaderships hated that because obviously they were looking to pick up seats, but these gentlemen thought it was more important to provide and an, a, a, a safe space, a circle of trust, if you will, to give members to talk about these tough choices. Um, is this idea of sort of a get out of jail free card is what we called it. Is this something that members of Congress today those of you that are on the panel here today might consider doing for your other colleagues here as we we talk about these tough choices. Should this be something that a fiscal commission, members that are serving on the fiscal commission, should they be willing to do this on behalf of their other members of the commission in order to foment this, this, this uh, uh,
0: circle of trust? Well, ju- Tori, I'll jump in. Uh, by the way, when I was stationed in Davis-Monthan Air Force Base, Congressman Colby was my neighbor mm-hmm. up there by 8th Street and well, I can't remember the 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 intersection, but I was a to block away from them uh, there. I think a commission would offer that top cover and umbrella. Um, I also think being part of the problem solvers and the four country caucus, two different different caucuses, but same principles, one was veterans, one's more broad. I think that also offers us a chance to provide some defense of each other. By the way, to belong to both caucuses, we have sworn – not to attack each other politically or donate uh, to to opponents. So we have a little bit of that going on right now with, with uh, both of those caucuses and and, and, I, and I'll be the first to say I've I've loved working with Jared and Scott Peters both in different capacities and different issues, uh, but both have been outstanding uh, people to negotiate with, good of their word, and uh, and I and I think they both will tell you I compliment them publicly. <laughs>
3: Yeah, I I think one of the problems is the exponential growth of spending in campaigns. Um, So, you know, I represent the second most rural congressional district in the country, and um, we saw 18 million dollars in total spending in 2018 and in excess of 30 million in the last election cycle in 2022. Um, so you know, it creates a, a bit of a difficulty for for someone like Don to come up to my district and um, you know hold a press conference or or write an, an opinion piece, trying to push back against tens of millions of dollars of spending. I think that you know, the times have have just changed uh, in a negative way, uh, with those attacks around things like Social Security, Medicare are it's hard it's hard to, it's hard to uh, break through all all of the noise. But um, I also represent. The oldest congressional district uh, per, per capita, and and among older voters, rightfully they are very concerned about receiving their benefit. Um, I think the good news I have to talk to people uh, is that Social Security Trust Fund uh, is an easier fix than Medicare, uh, which I've yet to fully understand. Um, you know, the problems with that program—it's very complex—and uh, and so are the uh, potentially the solutions, but. Social Security easier to get a handle on. But, but I think as you start to get down into younger demographics, you know, people who are still years away from retirement and, and younger um, folks in particular, they're very skeptical that Social Security is even going to be around for them in the future Such that they're actually, I think, very open-minded to the need to have these discussions. And so when you look around the corner politically out there, I, I, I think that there's more pressure on elected officials to actually take seriously the need for reform because there's a lot of folks that are saying, if you don't do anything, um, I'm paying into a program that I'll never reap any benefit from.
2: You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tory Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I are talking with three members of Congress, Don Bacon, Jared Golden, and Scott Peters, about uh, ways to bring about fiscal sustainability in a divided Congress. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tory Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I are talking with three members of Congress, Don Bacon, Republican of Nebraska, Jared Golden, Democrat of Maine, and Scott Peters, Democrat of California, about how to bring about fiscal sustainability for the federal budget in a, in a divided Congress. In this uh, in this last segment, one of the things that we talked about was service in the military and whether Congressman Bacon and uh, Congressman Golden thought that their military service had an effect on how they approach public policy issues.
0: Well, Steve, it's a terrible problem, and I don't have a good answer for it. It's not just the federal government. It's uh, subparts like DOD. DOD used to have roughly at 80 percent trust factor favorable, now it's around 50%. Still the one of the most trusted institutions in our country, uh, but it's also gone down significantly. And that's not a good sign for the world's most powerful democracy and the the city on a hill for freedoms are the values that we hold dear. America has to be the indispensable nation for freedom and uh, human dignity and all the values we embrace because without America, uh, the world's gonna be a much more stark place, but yet we're struggling internally. The gerrymandering of our districts, where you only have like forty really true swing districts, but I see it more in the cable TV and the I always call it the dark social media, and people get into their echo chambers, and then they become more radicalized. I mean, on our side of the aisle, and I think the Democrats side of the aisle has their own radicalization going on too. But on our side, because I see it, uh, they're being told every day our, our country is ready to fail because of the Democrats. And that if we don't stand up and fight, our country is going to collapse. So then you get this level of anger and intensity. And, if, and when you hear someone like me saying, hey, you know, the founding fathers, James Madison, designed a government where you have to find areas of consensus. They don't like it because it's, it goes against what they're hearing every day on cable and, so, and our social media. How do you beat that? Well, it was touched on a little bit here with Scott and Jared. Uh, you know, one of them brought up the fact that you gotta, we got to stand up and tell the truth. And it's not popular and and but when you do it a lot of folks are they, they are they feel like they got a coward to this intimidation you know the other week when I voted against Jim Jordan I took 32 31,000 phone calls in one week right my wife was harassed uh, I had businesses that supported me were, were protested at and what did it do to me? Well maybe mad and uh, but some folks, we're literally scared on my side of the aisle to do what I did. They told me they can't they can't afford to have their supporters protested, their families harassed. But we need more people to be a little more of a lightning rod on this and stand up and just push back. So, for example, I support the FBI. You would, you would swear, and so the folks on my side of the aisle, I think it's a minority, uh, that I just did a terrible thing. I believe in supporting law enforcement. I believe in law and order. That's, I, That's a... Principle of the Republican Party uh, that should always be there, and if we ever give that up, I think we'll be in minority uh, for a decade to come. Uh, But they were surprised I pushed back. I said, "Yeah, the FBI director, he's got problems, and we should we have oversight. We should call him in." There have been some overreach, like the FBI office in Richmond, Virginia, that was calling Catholics, you know, radicals and potential, uh, you know, homegrown terrorists. But they should be punished. But the 99% of the FBI are great people. They're defending us against Russian agents, Chinese agents, Iranian agents, mafia, human trafficking, and we should support them. People aren't willing to say this kind of stuff enough on both sides of the aisle. And we got to break this echo chamber that people are living in with truth. And that's the only way I know how to do it. I don't know of a better way.
1: (laughs) Can I just say 100%, Don? I think that's exactly right. I mean, the response to a lack of trust in in the government's functioning is not to sit in the corner and cower. It's to get up and lead. And people are desperate for that. <clears throat> All the polls show that they want us to work together. And if you came up with, you know, with with um, Republicans, Democrats standing shoulder to shoulder saying this country's got a problem, we have to solve it. People will behind that. That's how you develop trust. Right. What people see and this is exaggerated, is the fighting between Republicans and Democrats, and they're sick of it. I mean, there is a lot of that, there's too much of it, but there's also a lot of people working, you know, sort of under the surface trying to solve problems. They don't see that. The way we get trust is to make the government work. The only way to make it work is in a bipartisan way. uh, And we can't let the campaigning get in the way of that. There's always been campaigning. I think the idea about protecting each other uh, on this issue makes a lot of sense. You know, we would have to tell the leadership, this is what we're going to do. Too bad. Um, you want to beat Don Bacon? You got to do it on something other than um, Social Security, and Medicare, because he's doing the right thing. I, I think that makes sense. But I hear this thing about, well, we can't do anything because people don't trust us. Baloney, quit. If that's why, what are you doing here? You know, I, I live in San Diego, California. I don't come to D.C. for the weather. I'm here to try to help the country to solve problems. And it's not that good a job if you don't take advantage of it.
0: By the way, Scott, there's a about a half million dollars of TV ads this week on I me mean, from a, a dark group, anonymous group. No one knows who's funding it, but it's about me cutting Social Security. And I know.
1: I mean, that's that's BS. Right? I'd be happy to to uh, to respond to that. By the way, Don, I voted against Jim Jordan. I didn't get quite the same reaction. as people seem pretty happy with me. <laughs> You're both members of
2: the four-country caucus. You mentioned it before. I'm just wondering, is there something about that service, that military service that makes you approach national public policy issues from a different perspective, do you think that there is a role for the growing number of, of veterans in Congress in
0: helping forge consensus on addressing some of our major challenges? Uh, two things I would say. Uh, first of all, being a veteran has helped me understand the importance of NATO. I understand Iraq, Afghanistan, Pakistan, I've served in the Far East, so I lived on four different continents. And so I feel like it, it gives me a level of credibility in the Armed Services Committee to address certain issues. So I, I would say, first off, just having 30 years, roughly, military experience, to the nuclear deterrence area, it's given me a chance to make a difference speaking out on what I think is needed uh, there. So having people that have been there and have background in it, it makes a difference. But I think more to your your point, 90% of us that are veterans, and there's a few exceptions that have gone way on the partisan side, but most of us, we'd like to sit down, we can look each other in the eye and, and deal with the problem and okay figure out what, what's best for the country. And I feel like Jared and I have been able to do that. Salute Carbajal and I and Jimmy Panetta, uh, Chrissy Houlihan, uh, these are all the some of the Democrats of the four-country caucus. We can sit down and solve problems we still got our values, whether they're the Democrats or the Republican side, but we can find that space in there where, where we can operate. So, as a case in point, quality of life. The military is struggling with pay. We have 15% of our enlisted people on food stamps or having to go to uh, food banks. Our housing is struggling. Our barracks are struggling terribly. So, I'm the chair of the quality of life panel. I work with Chrissy Huland, she's the ranking member. It is one of the most bipartisan things you're ever going to find in Congress. Because we're here to solve a problem, and I think it's just one example. Uh, you know, we have a group of us, Republicans and Democrats, that know that we got to solve housing, barracks, pay. Uh, we got a one-year waiting list for childcare. Our medical stats metrics are gone; have gone down in the last two or three years. We got to turn that around. And the largest unemployed segment of America are military spouses. We got to hopefully get a job because they're not getting paid enough in the military to put food on the table. So we got to facilitate these spouses getting jobs. And those are not Republican or Democrat issues. Those are American issues. And that's where I think the veterans uh, can come together.
3: That's a great group of, of vets. It's it's the uh, you know, kind of third organization I'm involved in that is bipartisan in nature. It, it is sometimes more interesting in that a, a lot of the members tend to be more ideologically a little further left or right rather than, um, you know, more kind of pragmatically middle. Um, But the caucus really exists to focus on supporting our national security, on supporting our service members and their families, some of those quality of life issues that Don was just talking about, and then to support our veterans. So it has a more limited, more narrow focus uh, than than some other bipartisan groups. You know, there's there's been some people who have focused, like Arthur Brooks wrote the book, Love Your Enemies, uh, how decent people can save America from the culture of contempt. And he talks a lot about, particularly in the political space, how literal contempt for the other side has led to a place where bipartisan compromise is nearly impossible uh, and strongly disincentivized. And I, I guess one observation I would make is that for veterans, you know, all of whom are, are proud of their their service to the country and, and no doubt learn some of the most important lessons of their life while doing that, it's pretty hard to hold your fellow veterans in contempt uh, such that we have respect uh, as the foundation of, of our ability to, to work together, regardless of party. You know, Don mentioned that I was the co-chair and so is he, we've actually uh, set up our own bylaws such that we have to have new co-chairs every Congress. And that's an acknowledgement of the fact that everyone that goes into the service learns how to be a leader and is capable of leading, but it's also an ethos, you know, within the squad, um, everyone has to be prepared to, to lead and do their part and be able to step up and do the job of, of others. And I think that ethos is, is an important one as, as well. Um, and, and veterans carry that into Congress such that the proudest service I've ever done the country was my military service. Um, it's an honor to represent people in Congress, but you, you got to be able to, to see the bigger picture and, and be proud of the service that you do here when it's all said and done. And I think a lot of veterans have that mentality such that they're not constantly thinking about reelection and understanding that they've already done their biggest service to the country. They're willing to keep serving, but they're going to do it on their own terms. And I think, you know, without fear of of, of reelection. And that's an important mindset that I think many veterans have as, as well.
2: We're going to have to wrap things up, but I want to turn to Congressman Peters to uh, uh, maybe take us out on an optimistic note. You seem relentlessly optimistic. And that's a That's a good thing. So what 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 keeps you
1: going? What gives you hope? Well, as I said, I'm from San Diego, so I must be optimistic to get on the plane every week and fly all the way out of here. <laughs> so uh, Wayne Gretzky said skate to where the puck is going. This commission is where the puck is going. There's no there's no really way around it. Uh, the speakers talked about it. He didn't put it in this last plan. Uh, but now there's a Senate companion. Um the, the issue is 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 really in the way of discussion about other policy issues. And I think it's going to happen. But what we, we just would encourage you to be engaged, to educate people about this, because there's lots of folks who still don't see that it's a problem. We can do it. We just uh, we just will need some encouragement. I'm uh, I'm I'm very optimistic that this that this comes about and uh, we're going to we're going to get it right. It's uh, too important. That's all the time we have for this week.
5: You've
2: been listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Thanks for joining us and be sure to tune in again next week.